Come out to Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, April 5th at 6.30 p.m. to listen to a podcasting panel featuring Alicia Montgomery of NPR's Morning Edition and Mary Nichols of the Fusebox Radio Broadcast and me, Michael O'Connell, from the It's All Journalism podcast. This free event is sponsored by Humanities D.C. You can find out more about this event at itsalljournalism.com and on our Facebook page. When you have a market-driven, you know, system, which is the one that we have here in this country, unlike you know the British system where they you know, tax TVs and devices and things like that, we're dependent on uh, commercials for the most part, uh, with the exception of the NPR model. Then it, you know it makes a difference in terms of just competition for eyeballs. Are we really living in a post-truth world? And if we are, then what does it mean for journalists as we try to cover the news and foster trust among our audience? I'm Michael O'Connell. And you're listening to It's All Journalism. Today on the phone, I'm talking to Ed Madison, an assistant professor and media partnership coordinator at the University of Oregon's School of Communication and Journalism. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. Well, to start off with, uh, tell me your journalist journey. This is something I usually like to ask people. Uh, How did you get into journalism and what led you to Oregon? Well, I was uh, fortunate to kind of have journalism be a part of my life around the, the dinner table. My dad was a uh, trailblazing journalist. He was the first African-American to join the editorial staff of the Chicago Tribune back in 1961. So he covered the civil rights movement, and you know, he worked for the Chicago Tribune before that. And um, we moved to Washington, D.C. when I was, oh, maybe seven years old. So, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I was in the middle of the thick of it, actually, and it was just a, a great experience to have him as a, a mentor. And from there, I actually, let's see, in high school, I stumbled into a, a counselor's office and saw a sign on the wall about an internship that you could participate in for six weeks at the local CBS television affiliate there in Washington, which at the time was owned by the Washington Post. And so I applied for that and was accepted. And it was uh, during the height of the Watergate scandal, so it was a, really an amazing time to, to get into the field. The producer of that show uh, that I, I worked on at Channel 9 in Washington was a had come from Boston, and he actually told me about Emerson College. And so I, after researching it and finding out that you know, just some of my heroes, like Norman Lear and people like that, had gone to school there. I did, that, that was the only school I was going to apply to, which my parents weren't happy about. But I was, I was really sort of very single-minded about that. And then, so I attended Emerson. And during my time there, I worked at uh, several television stations as, intern, as an intern. And then graduated. And the day after my last class, moved out to Los Angeles and had the good fortune of being called about a year after I was in Los Angeles by the woman who I had interned for in Boston. And she was at that point running the features unit for something called CNN, which no one had ever heard of at that point. And she uh, asked me if I thought I was ready to be a producer. I was like 22 years old. And I said yes. And um, they flew me to Atlanta and offered me a contract. And I spent the next two years in Los Angeles uh, producing a nightly entertainment news program for CNN, uh, hosted by Lee Leonard, called People Tonight. And then uh, later by Mike Douglas, who had also been kind of a hero of mine. So you have to be maybe a little gray hair to know that Mike Douglas was on TV actually as long as Johnny Carson was. He had an afternoon show, much like Ellen DeGeneres' uh, talk show, 
and I've grown up watching that show, and I, I got to produce his, his final sort of time on, on television. And then I became a producer for the CBS Morning Program, which was one of the many uh, attempts to compete with the Today Show, and you know, was the West Coast producer of that program. Got to do a, just an incredible, had an incredible experience. Got to travel to through Europe and just a great experience. Covered the opening night of Michael Jackson's Bad Tour and all kinds of stories that we probably don't have time for me to tell. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mention uh, Michael Douglas. The Mike Doug Douglas Show. I remember watching that when I was growing up. That was something that my mom watched every day. Yeah, it was a, a sort of a Early, it was sort of a daytime form of that entertainment program, entertainment news program. So yeah, my first my first job in LA was actually doing cue cards for the Mike Douglas show for Mike Douglas. So I would write up the cue cards and hold them, you know, for when he was asking questions and everything else. And so that that was also a very important experience in that it allowed me to kind of experience just a higher caliber of production, but but without having to be a you know. A producer at that point so watching other people make mistakes and seeing what i would do so when jane called me like six months later with a cnn gig you know i think i was psychologically ready to to make that move and the reason we're, we're talking today is you you're the author along with uh, ben dejanet of a new book uh, reimagining journalism in a post-truth world how late night comedians internet trolls and savvy reporters are transforming the news. And that's a pretty long and provocative title. It kind of ties together a lot of different themes. What inspired you and Ben to write this book? Well, it's interesting. This is a two and a half year journey, this book. I mean, clearly, you know, journalism has been changing and shifting and having to morph and in search of new business models. And, you know, for some time, the, the post-truth world part of it <laughs> didn't come until after Donald Trump won the election. We were supposed to turn in our manuscript like in this, like right in right before the election occurred. And you know, after that happened, it shifted what how we all reimagine journalism, I guess, at this point. And so we got a six month ex extension and had to um, really relook at at a lot of the chapters and try to figure out you know what all this meant because you know it's fair to say that I mean a lot of politicians don't like the watchdog role that journalism plays in society. But I don't think it's necessarily ever been under attack, you know, on a daily basis as it has under this administration currently. So, you know, it was timely and and perhaps fortuitous for, for this to come out now, but it's, it's a little bit of a different take on it than um, than we had originally imagined. So what was that? What was your original take? How is it different, do you think? If you look at the surveys of, you know, in terms of trust in journalism, you know, it's at an all-time low. I think the statistic that most people cite is like 32% of the people say they trust the media. So this was this was prior to the outcome of, of the election. Um, and uh, and so as a journalism professor and a person who's, you know, worked in the profession, we thought it would be interesting to, to take you know, uh, sort of, a, so I bring sort of a gray hair perspective at this point, and, and Ben brings, you know, a more contemporary view and, you know, a, a new and fresh perspective and approach to it. So the, the two of us together just thought this was, would be a great way to look at, you know, what are some of the, 
the pitfalls? What are some of the issues that journalism is confronting right now? And, and how can we, um, as a profession, shift the conversation about, about the profession? In many ways, teachers and journalists find themselves in the same place right now in terms of uh, public discourse about, you know, whether or not journalists or teachers are you know, doing what they ought to be doing. And, and since a lot of my research work doubles over into education, I, I, I find that interesting. And my mom was a teacher, so. It's kind of a an interesting moment. It's been an interesting moment for, you know, at least two years and what's going on in journalism. Journalism and, and journalists are kind of notorious for being navel gazers about their industry. And I recognize the irony of this. This is you know being the host of a, a journalism focused podcast uh, that every week I talk about you know the important issues around journalism. But the fact is, is we spend a lot of time discussing what's working, what's not working. But it seems like post election, post two thousand sixteen election, there there was like this moment where everybody sort of stopped and sort of started examining the way they were doing their jobs. Is, is that something that you sort of observed and sort of incorporated into the book? Well, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, you know, Donald Trump was a candidate and there's a president who plays by his own rules, and, and they aren't the rules that professional journalism uh, has been used to in terms of access, in terms of, of just transparency about, you know, what the administration is up to. It's an interesting time. You know, I mean, just in terms of the level of discourse, I mean, just the, you know, name calling and the, you know, um, overt attacks of, on specific journalists. We haven't seen that kind of behavior, maybe perspective yeah. or yeah, yeah, behavior. Yeah. It's a different time. Yeah. We, we talk about, you know, that, that Donald Trump does this. You know, this is kind of his M.O. And I know that, you know, I've seen I've read in other pieces where. You know, journalists going out just covering City Hall, they have uh, local politicians who begin sort of using the same sort of tactics. So it's not just necessarily a Donald Trump sort of thing. It's a thing that other politicians are are seizing as a tool in order to sort of control the message, in order to uh, denigrate or or sort of cut down the validity validity of of the watchdog role. I think it's yeah. so, so. we're certainly seeing that internationally. We're you know we're seeing other uh, you know leaders invoke Donald Trump and using the term fake news to label anything that um, that they don't like or find that, that's you know too probing. It becomes labeled as fake news. It's weird that 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 whole idea of fake news. Now let's sort of start from an academic standpoint. What what do you consider fake news? I generally don't engage with that term because I find that if it's if it's fake it's it's not news and it's easy to kind of get wrapped up into a sort of ideological conversation about you know the legitimacy of mainstream media compared to other types of organizations I think that at the end of the day we know that when there is a catastrophe or there's some grave incident that happens people tend to go to the legacy media outlets that are tried and true, you know, the New York Times, CNN, NPR. And, you know, that's, that, that continues to be the case. So it's a question of, you know, who is, like when I talk to students, I, I ask the question, you know, it's like when you go to a, a store, you frequent a restaurant, you know, and you decide to come back, what are you basing your decision on? Well, the fact that, you know, they're reliable that you can trust that, you know, they're going to provide what they 
said they were going to provide. And to that degree, I think it's the same way we should look at news and information. You know, there are organizations that have built a track record, and and there's a reason for that because they're very, very conscientious about, um, or their leaders are very conscientious about just protecting the integrity of what they do and and their brand, if you will. So what what do you think has gotten us into this environment of mistrust or or less trust toward the media? What are some of the factors that you think have sort of played into this? So I'm just going to talk about the broadcast part of it for a minute, because that's the one that I'm most familiar with and and I think is really, really interesting. So around the 1990s, we had a shift occur, and I and I and I talk about this in, in the book around the meaning of the anchor desk. So you know when Walter Cronkite used to sign off each evening and say that's the, you know that's the way it was, people had a sense that 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 was legitimately the you know the truth of what was going on. And then we saw sort of what I call the tabloidization of journalism in the sense that when Rupert Murdoch came to the U.S. and and bought the Fox uh, network, it became a place where there were, you know, shows like The Current Affair with Maury Povich, which started off a whole genre of programs that included Inside Edition with Bill O'Reilly. Paramount got into it with Hard Copy. And all of a sudden, given that these shows were adjacent to regular and traditional news broadcasts, there was this blurring of the lines between you know, what it meant when you saw someone behind a desk that, you know, they, they mimicked and they basically, you know, borrowed from from that sense of authority that the anchor desk had. And now, you know, when people say they don't trust media, you know, the question I ask is, you know, to what degree are they making specific distinctions between, let's say, what Lester Holt does and what Sean Hannity does or, uh, or Rachel Maddow, for, for that matter? In other words, you know, when you're reading a newspaper, you have this sense that there's the front page and there's the commentary and page and the, you know, the editorial page. And, and it's very clear because there are various sections. But when you turn on television and, you, you know, you kind of click around, um, you're seeing all kinds of things. And I, I think that, you know, if you were to go out to a shopping mall and ask people if what Rachel Mano does or what Sean Hannity does is news, many of them would answer yes. Probably most of them would answer yes. And so I think that's one of the, the major problems that exists is that people don't make clear distinctions about the difference between opinion or punditry and, and news casting. Sort of sort of newsertainment. Yes. Has a has a semblance of news but is actually there to entertain. Not that a news show can't be entertaining, but that's not what it right. necessarily its primary primary focus is. It's right. aiming to in, inform. So in something that, you know, you mentioned some of the Fox shows and the, and the Fox pundits, by the same token, you could also point to people like Jon Stewart, who are doing, you know, basically they're doing comedy shows that have a, a news aspect to them. And those are, are straight entertainment. They're straight satire. But many people still use those as sources for their news. They learn about stories from that, from the late night, late show hosts who have a news segment Somebody like Seth Meyers, who has regular right. sort of newsy type um, segments where he's commenting on the news, it's sort of a uh, the monologue in a different form, but it, it, it takes sure. on it takes on the semblance of a newscast in a way. Like I sort of alluded to, a lot of people that's that's their source of the news, yeah, and it's skewed. And um, I don't have a problem with that at all. As a matter of fact, you know, John Oliver 
will take a complex topic like net neutrality and spend, you know, 20 minutes to a half hour dissecting it in ways that you won't find on on many of the news networks. And it does a great public service. Something that's very dense. Yeah, very dense topic that's, you know, otherwise could be very boring. And to break it down in a way that people take interest in it. I think people are are comfortable in consuming information that way. So if you're able to make it it's nothing new. This is something that, you know, people have been doing for years through documentaries, through TV shows that, you know, maybe they have a real message buried in whatever the story they're telling, but by, by making it more palatable, they're not maybe presenting it in the, the old time structure of a news cast or a, a hard hitting report. But then, you know, that's sort of, you know, that's where you kind of have to trust that. You know, I remember when um, John Stewart was on, I think it was, was it Crossfire? Was that the show? Yeah. Where, where he confronted yeah. the hosts and on the one hand, yeah. the hosts, you know, on the one hand, you know, it was great to see him skewer the host because they were doing a lot of the things that you, you kind of talked about. But on the other hand, I kind of felt sorry for them because they, when they tried to turn back and attack him, he was like, whoa, 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 I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm not a news program. I'm, I'm in a, you know, I'm a, I have a show about puppets that leads into me. You know, I'm an entertainment show. So, yeah. you know, it's not his responsibility. It's not these entertainers responsibility to cover the news. However, it's interesting to see somebody like Oliver who who goes deep on his research and the the facts that they bring in. So employing mm-hmm. employing um, methods that in another arena would be called journalistic to tell their right. story to add substance to their story. They, you know, they recognize the power of of the truth and research and, and and information behind the joke. You know, if you're able to pull all this stuff and then and then land a joke in the middle of it, it, it has much more power. Right. I, I you know, let me tell you about this. I, you're an educator and I I'm a journalist. I, I had a really interesting experience about a month ago. I went to DePaul University and I spoke to students about podcasting and we recorded a couple of podcasts. But what we the first thing we did in the morning is I, I went to a class and they put together a podcast. They went out and they asked their we were we were like sort of fumbling around, well, what can we have the students record? And they went out and asked their friends you know, well, why don't you ask your friends about fake news, what their what their opinions are? And they brought the audio back. And I was actually quite surprised that there was a degree of, you know, understanding about what fake news was, that some of it was, it was just stuff that was sort of mastered to elicit a particular type of response to a particular political message. They, they kind of understood that, mm-hmm. I think, innately. And actually, I would even almost say that they viewed it all kind of cynically. You know, I think people their understanding of what the news is, of understanding what, what our ethical standards are of objectivity and fairness and, and, you know, not being biased. I don't think we always necessarily communicate that well to people so that they maybe understand what we're doing. What we're doing, what journalists, quote-unquote journalists do, is different from, from other people like, like late-night hosts and things like that. Yes, and, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is about um, how – Rune Arledge, um, who had run you know, the sports division of ABC, was put in charge of news. And that's when we saw you know, Good Morning America and 2020 and also you know, World News Tonight become a bit more entertaining than the, the sort of drier approach that had been sort of the mainstay of, of broadcast news. Some people say that was the beginning of sort of a slippery slope, you know, just... NBC's series 
to catch a predator, which was part of, uh, you know, the, the their, their, their news magazine format that got great ratings, but yet had issues because later they were seen to be entrapping, you know, um, some of the people that they focused in on, on that, on that particular program. So when you have a market driven, you know, system, which is the one that we have here in this country, unlike, you know, the British system where they, you know, tax TVs and devices and things like that, we're dependent on uh, commercials for the most part, with the exception of the NPR model, then, you know, it makes a difference in terms of just competition for eyeballs. And that can have an effect. And, and so certainly, you know, CNN's choice to cover Donald Trump's rallies, you know, leading up to his election and, and just turn a camera on and, you know, follow much of what he did without specific analysis or placing it into context. I think, you know, in the aftermath of all of, all of that, is probably seen as a mistake. Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN, many people don't realize this, but he was an entertainment executive at NBC, you know, prior to coming to CNN, he was the person who greenlit The Apprentice. Now, there's no, no right. there's no way he would have known where that was going to lead. But we basically had, um, I don't know how long The Apprentice was on with, with Donald Trump, but certainly more than a decade of incredible um cultural significance, you know, in terms of what was modeled for people as leadership weekly on, on television. Right. So why should we be surprised that there's a large section of the country that um, believes that's what leadership is supposed to look like? Yeah. And here we are, we have periodic yeah. firings that are just like uh, weekly firings on, on The Apprentice. One of the chapters in your book, you, you talk about the problem of the press talking to its audience and not engaging with people. How is this sort of contributing to, you know, the fact that we're, we're talking more at people and, and not necessarily maybe listening? How is this maybe sort of contributing to this distrust? So up until the innovation of, of the internet and comment sections, you know, it used to be you would write a letter to the editor and an editor would decide which of the three letters of the 20 that came in would get published. And so, you know, the internet provided a democratization and kind of a, you know, all comers in terms of, of commenting. That's also been, you know, come with its own problems because you get people who just in terms of the low level of public discourse and sort of name calling and, and all of that to the point where many publications have decided to either certainly to either to look at things before they get posted or to just take the comment section out altogether. So that's one piece. In terms of broadcast news, there's an interesting piece that many people may not realize, and it's in a sense kind of the the stair step to larger markets. So typically someone will start out in a smaller market and they come as a you know reporter to, let's say, Eugene, with the notion that they're going to spend a year and a half there before they move to Portland or Seattle, before they move then to New York or Los Angeles, and then, you know, to potentially network, which means that you've got, just by its nature, a situation where people aren't necessarily truly invested in the communities in which they, they are in. You know, where the, the local market is a, is a stepping stone to the to the next larger gig. So that's that's a problem because um, if you're not really seen as a as a person who's really committed to the community that you serve, and it is serving a community when you're a journalist, people pick up on that, even if it's not 
spoken. Yeah, this idea that there's a this sort of farm system out there that all of these right. reporters, and this is not even just in broadcast, it's in print as well. You start off at a weekly, you mm-hmm. go to the local daily and, and sort of work your way up. But, you know, this idea of establishing a, a relationship with, with your audience, I, I think, is huge. And in, in, in listening to what they have to say and looking for opportunities to, you know, engage with them. I think that was one of the things immediately after the election that people were, were talking about, the the swath of the population that the mainstream media didn't really uh, talk to or listen to. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That there was a sort of blind spot. It's like, well, this seems like it came out of nowhere. Well... Apparently, if you if you visited certain communities, if you went into the Midwest and, you know, into Nebraska, that you would have a, maybe a very different perspective of of what was going on in, in the country and maybe what the tenor mm-hmm. of the political debate was. You wouldn't have been so surprised, I guess, at the outcome. Yeah. So to wrap this up so it doesn't seem all so dire, what do you see in your title? You talk about reporters who, who savvy reporters who, who are doing something positive. What do you see are some of these examples of positive things that are happening right now? Well, uh, there's, uh, there's like the Marshall Project, there's ProPublica. There are a number of uh, organizations that have come up that are publicly Funded. I like the NPR model in the sense that I think that they do some of the best news reporting that there is. And I also, you know, there, there are a number of crowdsource organizations that are coming up. I was just actually looking at something on Twitter a bit earlier about a community info co-op called, you know, if you go to at info districts, I don't know anything about these folks, but that they're raising some funds via Kickstarter and so there, you know, there are a number of different things out there. I also think you're going to see more partnerships between universities and news organizations. You know, it allows students to get their voice in there. You know, I think that one of the issues that is a huge concern to uh, mainstream media is that you know the students that I teach aren't watching the nightly news. You know, they're not watching. They're not reading legacy local papers. I mean, they read the New York Times and they're watching CNN, but they're not engaged in in news in the same way. And I think part of that problem has to do with uh, they don't see their voices reflected. You know, so I think we're going to need to have younger voices reflected in some of the mainstream media, seeing you know younger reporters maybe covering some of the things that they're interested in, and that'll bring those bring that demographic to uh, some of these mediums and platforms that are still very effective and still, you know, profit centers for companies, but yet they haven't taken that step yet. Ed, this has been great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, how, thank you. Yeah, how can people find the, find your book? Are they be able to find that like on Amazon? So you can find it on Amazon. You can also uh, we have a web page set up. So if you go to reimaginingjournalism.org, you know that'll also just take you to Amazon. So you can purchase it on Amazon. <laughs> it's probably the easiest way to get it. Okay. Again, thanks for coming on. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. It takes a lot of people to produce an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Garisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. 
you want to find out more about podcasting, come on out to Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, April 5th at 6.30 p.m. Joining me on a panel to discuss podcasting are Mary Nichols of the Fusebox Radio Broadcast and Alicia Montgomery of NPR's Morning Edition. It should be a great time. It's going to be a fun discussion. And uh, come on out and wish us a happy 300th episode of It's All Journalism. You can find out more about this event on our Facebook page and on our website, itsalljournalism.com. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean, across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks! Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.